0: Great to be back with you guys. Great to see you. Uh, congrats on a month in to the school year. Um, I want you guys to imagine a situation with me. When, when me and my wife uh, were planning our wedding, we'll, we'd been married eight years this past, this September. In a couple of weeks, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, but, uh, so coming on eight years, but when we started planning our wedding, I don't remember when, you, I don't remember when we started planning our wedding. That's harder. Um, but we all, we had responsibilities. Uh, she, I did some stuff. Um, one of, I wish I'd done more. Uh, I wish it could have been way more helpful. One of my responsibilities was to plan and book the honeymoon. That was kind of like one of the things that, hey, hey, can you do this? I was like, and I did it. Just to be very clear, I did do this. I did it. We went on honeymoon. It was awesome. But I want you to imagine with me a hypothetical situation. This did not happen. But I want you to imagine me for just a moment that it did. I want you to imagine that we're in the middle of planning, and my wife Julie comes up to me. She's like, Samer, question. Um, I need you to plan and book the honeymoon. I'm like. Cool, she's like, can you do that? And I'm like, yep, I got you, okay. So she says, go do it. So imagine she comes to me a week later and she's like, hey, Samer, just follow up. Did you plan and book the honeymoon? And imagine I look at her and I say, did I plan and book it? Nah, but babe, I, I took exactly what you said and I put it on a note card and I like, I read it over and over and over again. And I like, I highlighted the key words, like plan and book. Those were the verbs and I highlighted them. Like I, 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 and I just, I, I underlined it. I mean, I read that thing 30 times. I could probably say it right back to you exactly how you said it. She'd be like, Samer, go plan and book the honeymoon. Magic comes back to me a week later and she's like, hey, did you plan and book the honeymoon? And I'm like, did I do it? Nah, but babe, listen. I memorized what you said. I put it like on my speedometer. I can't even see how fast I'm going, but it doesn't matter because that's how important your words are. Right? I put it on my mirror. So when I, when I wake up and I'm brushing my teeth, I see what you told me. I mean, I've internalized it. You said, this is exactly what you said. Sammer, comma, go plan and book the honeymoon. So powerful. She'd be like, Sammer, go plan and book the honeymoon. Imagine she comes back a week later. Sammer, did you plan and book the honeymoon? Like, did I do it? No, nah, but pay. Small group came over, and we talked about it. And it was so powerful. And I cried, and they cried, and then my friend brought a guitar, and we sang about it. It was so, and we were laying hands. We were praying for each other. It was unbelievable. She drop kicked me in the throat. <laughs> and then she would go plan and book the honeymoon. Silly hypothetical example, but here is the point, and you get this. The difference is in the doing, which is the tension that we've been wrestling with throughout the course of this series that we are concluding today called This is the Way. We've been wrestling each week with this tension, right? That you can be a Christian, you can believe in Jesus, but not. Follow in his way. Kind of how we've said it is that you can be convinced, convinced that Jesus rose from the dead and he died for your sins and, 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 and you're going to heaven. I mean, fully convinced, but not committed to following in his way. And we, we talked about this, and so just by way of review, if for some of us, if you're here for the first time, you're kind of coming in on the tail end of a three-part conversation, so I just want to kind of catch you up. In the book of Acts, which is a New, Testament, um, do, that, uh, a New Testament book that documents for us the explosion of the early church, um, Christians, they didn't call themselves Christians, right? And if you've been with us, you know this, but just by way of review, they called themselves followers of the way, That's how they identified themselves. In fact, the term Christian, um, that was given to Christians by those outside of the faith. Christian was a political term. It literally just meant those that belonged to the party of Jesus, that this group of people that talked about this resurrected savior had become a prominent enough group of people that they needed a title. So those that weren't Christians just called them Christians. They were these people that belonged to the party of Jesus. What they called themselves was followers of the way. And this word, the phrase the way in the Greek, it literally means, and you can see this in the book of Acts, it literally means a whole way of life. That following Jesus, it was not just a belief, it was how I modeled my whole life. That there was not an area of my life for these first century followers that Jesus did not influence. And if you'll remember, if you'll remember, um, Jesus has a lot of titles today and, and you might not sure what you do or don't believe about Jesus. Maybe you're still unsure and you're not sure what you do or don't believe about faith, but what we do believe about Jesus is that he's the son of God. He's the resurrected king. Okay, but in the first century, he had another title, this human title, and it was that of rabbi. Rabbi, which is just Hebrew for teacher. And in the New Testament, in the gospels, Jesus had disciples. Okay. He had the, these followers that followed him, these disciples, John and James and Peter, right? Um, even if you haven't grown up in church, you know of these, um, these disciples. And disciple literally just means student. But we've said that the best translation for the word disciple in the Greek is apprentice. Apprentice. Every rabbi had apprentices that you can be a student just to learn something, but when you're an apprentice, you're learning in order to be just like. And so in the first century, these rabbis, a very esteemed position in the Jewish community, um, they had apprentices. And the goal of an apprentice was to be just like their rabbi. The goal of an apprentice, like that was the goal of their life. They followed their rabbi everywhere he went in order to think like he think, to interpret the law the way he interpreted the law, to argue the way he argued, to talk the way that he talked. Their goal was to become just like their rabbi. So Jesus having apprentices wasn't unique to him. Every rabbi had apprentices, but Jesus, as we've seen, is unlike any other rabbi. And, and we've kind of looked at this verse. This has kind of been our anchor verse for the whole series. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's Jesus's longest recorded sermon. And he says this at the very end of his Sermon on the Mount. And his Sermon on the Mount, it's like the how-to of following Jesus, what it looks like to live in his kingdom. And so to kind of round it all out loud, he says this, I want you to enter through the narrow gate. And um, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many will enter through it. And he goes on to say, but narrow is the, is the way that leads to life and only few will find it. So what is he saying? He said, I want you to enter through the narrow gate. And this word um, road here, it means way. So what he's saying is there's kind of two paths you can take. And the the broad path is the path, the kind of a popular culture. It's where everybody else is gonna go. Live as everybody lives. Um, Handle your money the way everybody handles their money. Treat people the way everybody else treats people. Date the way everybody else dates. Um, Don't worry about integrity. Do whatever you want. Get what you want, however much you want, as much as you can, as long as it's good for you. But he says there's a narrow way. It's a different way. And this idea of entering the narrow gate, it's, hey, I want you to come be my apprentice And I want you to walk along the narrow way. I want you to order your life around mine. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And while our cultural context is different today, the goal is the same and the invitation is the same, to order our lives around the way of Jesus. So by way of review, what we saw in week one is that there's a path. There's a path. Jesus has invited us to walk along the narrow path behind him that leads to life. And then last week, Jake, who I absolutely loved, listening to Jake, hope you guys enjoyed Jake as well, he talked about that there's a price. There is a price to following Jesus. There is a price to being an apprentice of Jesus, to deny yourself, to say no to you, to pick up your cross and to follow. There's a price, but we said this, right? That there's a greater price, there's a cost. There's a greater cost to not following Jesus. So there's a path he's invited us to follow. There's a price. There's a cost. We're not going to sugarcoat that. And as we conclude our series, what I want to spend a few minutes talking to us about is the posture, the posture of an apprentice of Jesus. We're going to jump into this moment. Now it's one of the most powerful moments in the New Testament. In the gospel of John. Again, the Gospels are just the accounts of Jesus' life, and John was one of Jesus's closest followers. In fact, in his gospel, he wrote out this account of Jesus' life. He, he doesn't call himself John. In the Gospel, he identifies himself as the one whom Jesus loved. So John clearly thought very highly of himself. So we're going to be in John chapter 13, and, and where we are in John chapter 13 we're jumping into this series of moments. It's kind of the final moments that Jesus has with his disciples, with his apprentices before he is crucified on the cross. So these are kind of some of these final moments. They don't fully understand it yet. Jesus knows what's about to happen. They don't fully get it. It's these final moments, the final moments of his earthly ministry. And just before the moment that we're about to jump into, um, an argument had broken out. And the disciples started arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. The disciples thought that Jesus um, was gonna march into Jerusalem and like take over Israel, like Game of Thrones style. Like he thought like he was gonna come in, rule the Iron Throne, and it was like dunzo, and he was gonna take over everything, and he was gonna rule right now here. Jesus had a different plan. mind. He was a different kind of king. And so here they are arguing who's going to be the greatest when Jesus finally conquers Rome and and rules the world. And they're arguing who's going to sit at his right and his left. So it's kind of within that, this moment in John chapter 13 happens. John chapter 13, starting in verse one, it was just before the Passover festival. And Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world. Again, these are the final moments with his disciples. And and to go to the father, he was gonna die on the cross, in the tomb for three days, and he was gonna resurrect. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them until the end. John wants to make very, very clear. Again, this is his color commentary. The death of Jesus is imminent, and he wants to make clear this rabbi, this teacher, he loved us with everything that he had until the very end. And then John goes on in verse two. He says, um, the evening meal was in progress. The, the Passover festival always had this. The Passover meal. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil, the devil, had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Okay, now Judas, he would be the disciple that would betray Jesus and hand him over to his would-be crucifiers. Now, I just want you to hold on to this. This is the first explicit reference. Well, this is an explicit reference right here in this John chapter thirteen, of. Um, of Judas betraying Jesus. I want you to hold on to that. We'll come back to it in a second. Jesus knew, Jesus knew, John goes on, that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Kind of, seems kind of random, um, but John is gonna make sense in just a second. Here's what he's doing with this moment. John is creating and he's giving you and I a status clarification about who Jesus is. And this is so important because of what's about to happen. John wants to make clear to anybody that would read this, there was no question as to who was the one that had all the power in the room. There was no question as to who the most powerful person in the room was. There was no question who was the one that had all the authority. There was no question who was the one that had the status. There was no question that it was Jesus. He was the Son of God, and God the Father himself had put all things under heaven and on earth under his authority. God the Son. So he gives this status clarification and then what happens next is shocking. So, John says, so after he gives this status clarification of of how high up Jesus is in the hierarchy of creation, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, his outer rabbinical garment, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around them. Now, culturally, foot washing was a very common thing in first century Palestine. Now, remember, we talked about this in week one. Um, uh, Most roads in these cities weren't paved. Like paved roads were reserved for the richest cities. So when you walked throughout the roads, um, your feet, because you wore sandals with no socks, by the way, because the only way to wear sandals. And if you wear socks, we should talk about it later. Okay. So you, you, you wore sandals, um, and I'm not talking about flip-flops, by the way, just to be very clear. Uh, but um, so you, you wore sandals, and so you know what it's like, right? Like when your, your feet get dirty, and, and there's like, it's like dust and stuff, in them your te- toes, and it, your feet already look gross. They look extra gross. And then when you walked into somebody's home, you don't wanna walk around and get everything so dusty. So it was very, very normal. You'd walk into someone's home, and you would wash your feet. Now, some homes, some families were wealthy enough. They had a servant, and so a servant customarily... Would wash the feet of the guest. Hospitality was a really, really big deal, is a really, really big deal in Middle Eastern culture. Trust me, they come over to my mom's house, she'll feed you until you can't breathe anymore. Uh, but um, so washing feet was a really, really big deal. But most houses, like not, most families, didn't have a servant. And so oftentimes you'd walk in and you would wash your own feet. I did read that um, there's, there were some instances where kids would wash the feet of like their parents and stuff. So whenever we got a daughter, listen to this sermon. But so, You'd walk in and get your feet washed. Very, very normal. What's not normal is who was the one that did it. And notice, notice what John is doing here in this moment. Jesus, the one with all the power. Jesus, the one with all the authority. Jesus was all the one in the status. He's the one that gets up. And then notice what John does. He gives so much detail around the preparation that is happening. That um, in, these, in these few verses, there are six action verbs. Six action verbs. The emphasis is all on the action, that he rises. He takes off the outer rabbinical garment and then he, and he wraps a towel around his waist and he takes the basin and he fills it with water and he starts washing their feet. And then with the towel, imagine like a, you know, a waiter wrapping something, the, 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 whatever, the, the apron around his waist and then he dries the feet. The emphasis is on the action of Jesus. The master teacher didn't come just to tell us about the way, he came to show us the way. And I want you to imagine this scene like when John wrote this with the detail, I think he literally wants us to see it and to feel it. Like if you, if you read it and close your eyes, you can, you can feel, you can hear Jesus, the rumbling with the basin and you can hear the water getting poured in and you can hear him taking that towel and wringing it out and you can hear the droplets hitting the basin. And if you were in that room, you certainly would have, able, you would have been able to hear it all in a pin drop because the room would have been dead silent. Is Jesus, the rabbi, the one with the power and the authority getting up, doesn't like give any kind of forewarning and begins to wash his disciples' feet. They would have been wide-eyed, shocked, not sure what to do. Do we say thank you? You know? Can I, can I tell him that he missed the spot on my big toe? They would have been so confused. I mean, jaw on the floor, dead, silent. What do I do in this moment? Nobody said a word until Peter, of course. Peter always spoke up. Jesus gets to Peter. They're all like, what is going on? Verse six, he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, Are you going to wash my feet? And in the Greek, the emphatic words are you and my. Are you really going to be like you, of all people, are you going to be the one that's going to wash my feet? This is ludicrous, this is crazy. And Peter was rightly like shocked and confused because this was the ultimate role reversal. His rabbi, his rabbi washing his feet in what universe? This was not the way. This was backwards. This was upside down. Verse seven, Jesus replies. He says, you do not realize. You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. <clears throat> hey, Peter. Later you're gonna understand better the lengths I'm willing to go to show you how much I love you. Peter, Peter. <laughs> You think this is crazy? You think this is shocking? You think this is upside down? You think this is beneath me? You have no idea what I'm about to do for you. He's alluding to his death on the cross. Peter, you've got a problem with this. You just wait, man, you have no idea. You have no idea. This is just a prelude. This is just a taste of what I'm willing to do to show you how much I love. So Peter responds, no, Uh uh-uh, no, sir. You shall never wash my feet. And you've gotta respect Peter in this moment. He's like, no, 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 we're not doing this. You are not washing my feet. I'm fully capable of washing my feet. I've got ingrown toenail on my right pinky, kind of hurts a little bit. I'd rather just do it by myself. This is way above you. This is not the way. This is not how this goes. The one in power, the one with the power does not stoop this low. Peter, and like the other disciples, they just weren't willing to speak up. They did not have a category for this. So Jesus answered, says, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now again, what Jesus is describing here, he's again pointing to his death and resurrection on the cross. And what he's ultimately saying is, hey, um, he's, he's alluding to his death, which was gonna wash everybody of their sins and forgive us of our sins. And because of that, we can be relationally connected to him. That's what he's alluding to. They don't fully understand it. So Peter, being like the overdramatic person that he is, he goes, well, then Lord, know I, I wanna be connected to you, man. Like, you're my boy. I wanna follow not just my feet then, but my hands and my head as well. Let's just take a bath, okay? Like, if that's the case, we'll take a bath. It's all good. I'll jump in to Jesus. Looking at Peter, I would imagine gently discouraging his, his excessiveness, probably with a smirk. He looks at Peter and he says, look, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. In other words, their whole body is clean. In other words, Peter I know you're good, I know your heart, you're okay. You don't, you're gonna have a part with me, like you don't have to worry about that. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew, for he knew, for he knew that who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone's clean. This is John giving us our commentary. So again, this is the second explicit reference to one of the disciples that was in the room that would betray Jesus. Hold on to that one, put it next to the other one for just a second. And when he had finished, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, he put back on his outer rabbinical garment, and he returned to his place. And they're all just like, dang, Jesus is good, man. It's the best foot washing. They're, you know, they're still like, I, they, I don't I, They probably haven't touched their food. And so Jesus says, so do you understand? Do you understand? Teachable moment. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. Then he goes on, he says, you call me teacher and Lord. And I love this. Both titles, which we've used both in this series, you call me teacher and Lord. And rightly so, for that is what I am. I am your teacher and I am your Lord. I am your rabbi and I am your Lord. I am your teacher and I am the son of God. Now you are right. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, I love that Jesus uses both titles. This is really important. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Both titles are so intentional. As your Lord, Jesus says, if I washed your feet, then none of you are above doing the same. And as your teacher, if I washed your feet, then I want you to do just as I do. He goes on and he says, I have set you an example. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. And this word example, it literally means pattern pattern. Hey, I've shown you the pattern. Hey, you followed me long enough, right? Like you followed me for a minute now. You've seen me do some crazy things. We're almost three years into this journey and you have seen me do this over and over and over again. I have served the lowly. I have loved the unlovable. I've shown compassion to those that should be beneath me. But no, but like you've seen me do this and model this for you over and over and over again. So here's what I want you to do. Follow the pattern of my life. I've taught you and now I've literally showed you. I want you to order the pattern of your life around the pattern of my life. I've showed you, I've showed you the way. Very truly, I tell you, he goes on. No servant, which would have been them, you and me, is greater than his master, Jesus. And nor is a messenger, them, you and me, greater than the one who sent him, which is Jesus. Here's his point. You never graduate. I never graduate from being an apprentice of Jesus that we never become greater than our master. We never become greater than Jesus. So if we can never become greater than him, then we are never above doing anything that he did. Jesus with all the power, Jesus with all the authority, Jesus with all the status washed the feet of his apprentices, takes the role of a servant and he takes a lowly posture, a lowly posture. This is, this is so important. Over and over and over again, this idea, a lowly posture characterizes the very heart of Jesus. In fact, there's this moment, I wanna look at it really, really quickly, this moment in the gospel of Matthew. Now, Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus, he has this really intimate moment with his disciples, And he looks at them and he says this, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is the only time in all of the gospels where Jesus describes his heart. And in the scriptures, whenever somebody talks about their heart, they are describing the totality of their being. And so what they're saying is, hey, this is who I am to the very core. This is who I am, the very fiber of who I am. This is who you get. I am gentle and lowly In heart. And this word lowly, this word lowly, it's a Greek word that can be translated humble, the virtue of humility, the virtue of being humble, the virtue of not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. But here in Matthew, and what Jesus is describing for us and showing us in John chapter 13, the, the, the word lowly can also have a different translation. And it doesn't just mean the virtue of being humble. Right here in Matthew and what, John, what Jesus is showing us in John chapter 13, it also means um, enduring hardship and being thrust downward. Being thrust downward to a lowly position. Willingly taking a lowly position. Taking a position that is lower than what your status actually is. So what does it mean for Jesus to be lowly? And what is he showing us in John chapter 13? 13. Jesus is lowly in heart in this sense that he literally came down from the splendor of heaven and took on human flesh. This is a conversation for another day because for some of you, maybe this is like brand new information. This is so helpful. That when Jesus was born in a manger, that wasn't the first time he existed. Jesus has existed as God forever with the Father and with the Spirit. So, Jesus is lowly in this sense. He came down from the skybox of heaven, okay? All you can eat, everything. The skybox of heaven, and he lowered himself to take on human flesh. He lowered himself and he took on the limitations of humanity to dwell amongst us, to serve and give his life as a ransom. For many, to be lowly, Jesus, God the Son, came down and made himself available, accessible, and approachable to you and to me, and to all of humanity. And Jesus, who often taught in parables here in this moment in John chapter 13, shows them a parable, an object lesson in humility. Take the lowly position. And you remember those two references to Judas? Jesus obliterated every excuse for why we should never do the same because he washed the feet of his would-be betrayer. And we unfollow people on Instagram that hurt out. He washed the feet of Judas, knowing that in just a short while, he would turn him over to be crucified. Absolutely no excuses for any of us. And he concludes, now, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This word blessed, it doesn't mean like blessed financially, like blessed, like I'm wake up and there's gonna be $5,000 in my bank account magically. Where did it come from? Hashtag blessed, okay? It literally means happiness. It means joy. It means a, 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 a contentment and a fulfillment. And what he's saying is you will experience great joy and contentment and fulfillment, not if you know these things, but if you do them. Responding to what you know is how you and I follow. So here's what we've done. We're gonna end our service early and we've set up 30 foot washing stations out here. And whoever is sitting to your left, I'm just kidding, we're not, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. We're that. We're not doing that. (laughs) <laughs> y'all were like, uh, no, no. <clears throat> you know what though? A relationship was about to happen. It was gonna happen. How did y'all meet? I washed her feet at church. Just kidding. So y'all are like, I am never, I'm so sorry. They're never weird. I'm never bringing my church, my friend here again. You know what I mean? It was like, what is, what is going on? That was funny. Weird night to sit by someone you don't know. Okay, <clears throat> y'all are gonna start leaving empty seats on your left the rest of the semester, okay? My mom's coming, my mom's coming. Okay, <clears throat> culturally, very, very different world. We're not doing the, the foot washing thing, okay? So like the homework isn't, go give your roommate a, a Jesus pedicure, okay? That's not, that's not the homework, Okay. But what is this pointing us to? The posture of a follower of Jesus. The posture with which we are to live. The posture with which should characterize every follower of Jesus. So if you're taking notes, here it is. The posture. We are to live low. We are to live low. We are to live low. To live low is to live with the posture that there is no act of service that is beneath you. To live low is to live with the posture that no person is beneath you. To never treat anybody like they are a waste of your time. To live low is to live with a readiness to serve another, to serve your roommate, to serve somebody that you don't even know, to serve somebody at work. Come on, to live low is to live with an awareness when other people have a need. To live low is to never be in too much of a hurry for somebody else. To live low is to never think you are too important for anybody else. To never think because of your status at work or your status in some organization or your status in your sorority or fraternity that you are in some ways better than somebody else. To live low is to be remarkable in the way that we care for others, especially those that we don't even really know. Come on, to live low is to make yourself available and accessible and approachable no matter what you think about yourself. Come on, to live low is to have a proper awareness of self and not thinking too highly of yourself at the expense of others. To live low is to elevate the needs of others even when it costs you and me. To live low is to stop asking what's in it for me and to take on the mentality of asking, how can I serve you? To live low is to value other people because every person that we come in contact with is another person that Jesus died for. As Lord, if he lived low, then none of us are above it. And as our teacher, if he lived low, we are to do as he did. This is the narrow way. The counterintuitive, counterproductive, countercultural, seemingly counterproductive way of Jesus. And here's the irony. Like the person that I just described, that's the kind of roommate you want. Some you are like, yeah, it's the kind of roommate I wish I had. This is the kind of person you want to date. Like, this is the kind of person you want to do life with. This is the kind of person you want to be in a group project with. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on. Yeah, preach. This is, this is like, these are the people that you want to work with. These are the people that you want in your life. This is the kind of person that you want to marry. This is the person that you ultimately should desire to want to be so I want you to take personal inventory. Like what area of your life or what relationship do you need to adjust your posture in? Come on, just be honest with yourself. Where do you need to adjust your posture? With your roommate, with some friends, somebody in your organization or your sorority or fraternity? Come on, is it somebody in your family? Is it somebody that you don't really know, but you know enough about to be judgmental of? Is it somebody that's hurt you? Is it somebody that you've deemed unforgivable? Come on, who or with whom do you need to adjust your posture? Then, as if Jesus wasn't challenging enough, soon after this moment, literally within the same series of conversations, soon after this moment, Jesus drops this line that's become kind of a heartbeat of our church and if you've, grown up, if you've grown up in church, you've heard this. It's one of Jesus's most famous lines. So within this context, he says this. He goes, so all their feet are clean. And he says, so hey, I'm about to leave. But again, let me give you something. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus sums it all up, kind of this, full circle moment from the Sermon on the Mount where he gave us the golden rule, you remember? Love others as you wanna be loved. Love your neighbors yourself. Here he gives us the platinum rule. No, 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 no. I don't want you to love someone just as you love yourself because sometimes you don't, you don't feel it. I want you to love them as I have loved you. And you've seen it. You've seen me serve you. I've washed your feet and you're about to see me go to the cross. So I want you to serve others like I've served you. Give as I've given to you. Seek out the good for others as I've sought out the good for you. Show love with no bounds, no limits and no conditions. This is the way. This is how all people will know you are one of my disciples. This is how people will know you are one of my apprentices if you live, love. Live low and live love. Live low and live, laugh love. Live low, (laughs) live low and live love. Live low and live love. Can you imagine, can you imagine your sphere of influence? Could you imagine your relationships? Can you imagine your friend group? Could you imagine um, Kennesaw State? If a group of people, could you imagine Chattahoochee Chat? Come on, could you, could you imagine your workplace? Could you imagine if we just decided I'm going to live low and I'm going to live love? I'm going to follow. Could you imagine the difference that we could make? Could you imagine the difference that you would make? I'm just telling you, When Christians decide to say, I'm not just gonna believe, I'm gonna follow and live, love, there is a massive difference to be made in and through your life. That's the posture. That is the way of Jesus. And he's invited you and he's invited me to communities flourish. History will tell us this. History tells us this. Whenever Christians follow, communities flourish. Whenever Christians follow, the good of others is propped up and communities flourish. Relationships flourish. Your future marriage will flourish. Your dating life will flourish. Your influence and your reputation will flourish. And according to Jesus, you'll be So that kind of concludes, this is the way. And, and I wanna just tie a bow on the series for us because um, we've kind of walked through three weeks of this and some of you kind of come in at part two or part three or maybe you've missed, you you know, missed part one and here you're coming in on the last two. I just kind of wanna tie all three weeks together. If you'll remember, i um, in week one. I kind of said, hey, you might be in one of three categories. You might be curious, convinced, or committed. And for those of you that were in the convinced and committed category, um, if you'll remember, if you're convinced or committed, I gave you a challenge. Um, And my challenge was this. My challenge was to get dusty. Um, Can we go to the next slide? Yeah, there we go. My challenge was to get dusty. And it was like, what? that's weird if you weren't here for part one, I'm I'm perfectly fine being clean. Um, If you remember, right, get dusty. Um, We talked about roads not being paved and they were You know, Sandy, and there was this common blessing. I told you guys this. There was a common blessing in the first century for any apprentice. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, may you follow so closely behind your rabbi that by the end of the day, you're covered in the dust that got kicked up from their sandal. So I said, hey, here's our goal. I want you to get dusty. And here's why we kind of laid it out over three weeks of the series. Getting dusty means surrendering daily, living sacrificially, Living low and live love. Surrender daily, live sacrificially, live low and live love. Surrender daily. God, not my will, but your will. Not my way, but your will. Live sacrificially. I'm going to say no to myself for the sake of others. I'm gonna live low and I'm going to live love. Get dusty. And then for those of you that were in the curious kind of stage If if you're curious, here was my challenge to you. I wanted you to stay curious. But maybe throughout the course of this series, you've gotten a different glimpse of Jesus, a more fuller picture of Jesus. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, your clearer picture of Jesus is compelling you to maybe take a step towards the convinced and committed stage. Maybe tonight, for the first time, you move out of curious and you say, you know what, I want to follow. Jesus in John chapter 13, he washes their feet. And then a few verses later, he gives us this platinum rule, I want you to love others as I have loved you. And then in John chapter 14, he gives one of his most famous lines ever and it is the most fitting way to end our series. He says this in John chapter 14, verse six. Again, the same moments. He says, I am the way. I am the way. In the truth, in the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, who is the way, he came to reveal for us and to teach us the way. But here Jesus is telling us, hey, I am the way to the Father. I am the way to be redeemed. I am the way to be forgiven. That sin, separated us from God. Sin made us incompatible with God, but then Jesus came down, took the lowly position, denied himself, literally picked up his cross and died a death that he did not deserve. And then he rose from the grave three days later, defeating the power of sin and death so that whoever believes in him experiences new life now and forever. I am the way, he says. I am the connection between two things, God and people. I am the truth. Jesus is completely reliable in all that he says, all that he taught, and all that he did. And I am the life. All life, here and forever, flows through me, Jesus says. So the invitation is to believe and follow. So maybe tonight, just right where you are, right where you are, believe. That Jesus died for your sins and came to set you free. That's it, right there, just right where you are. Just say it out loud, just like right where you are. Believe, believe that Jesus forgives you of your sins and sets you free. He forgives you of your sins and he set you free. He's forgiven you of your sins and he has set you free to new life, to follow a new way. Jesus, our teacher, came to show and teach us. Hey, this is the way. Follow me, order your life around mine. There is more life in this way than any other way. And then to demonstrate his great love for us, he died and rose again to make a way because Jesus is the way. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus Thank you for his example. Thank you for his love. Thank you for his grace. And thank you that no matter who we are, what we've done or what we haven't done, the invitation to believe is there. So Father, I pray for the person in the room that doesn't believe, that maybe is nervous. I pray, Lord, you would meet them right where they are and you would help them navigate whatever they need to navigate. I pray you'd give everyone in this room the courage to take the next step in their faith journey. I pray you would inspire people in this room to live low and to live love. I pray you would rise up a generation of Jesus followers in this space to actually follow and go change the world. Give us the courage to follow with all that we are. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.